Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And today's case, if we were doing a theme this week, the theme would be WTF. That's because, a good one. That's yeah, a good one. That, that's that is our the theme. theme. Because your um, Lavina Johnson case that everyone just heard, and then this one, it's just like, what? WTF. WTF. I got nothing. Yeah. That's that's that's, that's the theme. That's what you're going to say at the end of this. <laughs> you're going to be like, yeah. I got nothing. WTF indeed. Okay. I'm, this, I'm ready then. This ready, the, not ready. The the case of Teresa Knorr. Okay. Not heard of Probably her. Probably not. She's her crimes were in the eighties. She was caught in the nineties. But it's a wild ride. So she's the killer. Yes, we have a female murderer. Okay. Today. I like Mixing to change it up. it up a bit. And this is your this is like remember Dorothea Puente. Episode oh, three. My girl Dorothea, yes. yes. And her many, many marriages and, and roller coaster. So many. And then just recently, our um, Shelly Kotek case. Uh-huh. This is what happens if these two had a baby. <laughs> that, the thought of that it's terrifying. haunts my soul. Uh-huh. Yep, as it should. But this is this is definitely the reproductive matter. I'm picturing the baby, too, two. knowing what they look like. And it's, it's very unfortunate. It's not good. Like Nothing Dorothea's good. curls and... Well, first of all, we said Shelly lives literally in Satan's anus. Right. <laughs> so we already know that nothing good comes from I, Satan's anus. That's where the baby would, like, emerge from. Yes. Hatch, like, if you will. Spitting out yeah. into the world. Yep. And that Horrible is thought. Teresa Knorr. Okay. For sure. <laughs> okay. Good to know right off the bat. Where we're going to start is July 17th, 1984, when 45-year-old Maybell Harrison... I like it. Maybell. That's Maybelle. a good name. Maybell. It's so pure. It is. It really is. So she's driving along on California's Highway 89, probably rocking out. It is the 80s. Best yeah. time for music. She's got some, some 80s hair music, maybe. Good music going. And she notices that what appears to be on the side of the highway, some woods on fire. Oh. Not a big fire. But it's just like this glowing thing. And so she stops to investigate. She's like, this would be really horrible if all the woods. Yeah, it's California. Fire. It's probably dry. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's in July. It's July 17th. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very dry. Yeah. So she's decided she's going to check it out. Maybell is concerned. She is. And she's apparently a good citizen. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't know if I would have stopped. I would have been like, uh, I'm so nah. delicate. For sure. I'm kidding. <laughs> I would stop, of course. I don't, you know what? Now that we do a true crime podcast, I'm not stopping for fucking anything. <laughs> right. So, and it's California, too. Right. I've I've heard your California fruits and nuts. Right. We are not stopping in Once California. Once you look at those fruits and nuts, there's uh-uh. no going back. No. So I will call someone from my celly. For sure. Like, say, hey, the woods are on fire. You might want to check that shit out. But I'm no. driving by right now. I'm not hitting a break, Mm-mm. but they're on fire. Exactly. So she she does get out and she's like, I still don't know what I'm looking at. She could not discern what the hell she was looking at. Interesting. So, yes. 
However, as she gets closer, there is a smell, a horrific smell that stops her. And she's like, oh, WTF. I I got nothing here. Yeah, I got nothing. (laughs) Don't tell me it's that unmistakable smell that we read about in the books. It is the unmistakable smell. So she turns around, goes back up to the highway and waves down a man named Robert Eden. He stopped his truck when Maybell was waving. He's obviously also a good Samaritan. He's like, I will help. Mm -hmm. When she told him, like, okay, there is something, there is something aflame. She's like, I just need another person to process this with. He actually had a fire extinguisher in his truck. He's a semi-truck driver. Nice. So he's like, "I, I got this. They go down. They doused the flames. And they discover what appeared to be the charred remains of a corpse and soon they're like um we got to report this so luckily since he's got a big big rig he goes to his cb radio and radio breaker one nine we've got a body (laughs) absolutely i'm gonna title the episode that (laughs) there we have a title Thank you, because sometimes I struggle with good title titles. It was just conceived on this it episode. Was. I do like it when we birth things. Yes, I do too. <laughs> Natural birth right there. Wow. Oh my um, goodness. Okay. So on the scene comes Tahoe City Detectives Russell Potts and Larry Adams. It should be noted that Adams is spelled A-D-D-O-M-S. Interesting. You fancy Larry Adams. Very, very fancy. They arrived on the scene and immediately Russell Potts was like, this is way over my jurisdiction. Mm. Like, or way over, you know, my area of expertise. So they called in Michael Sags. And what an unfortunate name. For sure. Like, (laughs) but good for him for. And it's even got two G's. S A G G S double Michael, saggy Michael with the two the two sagging G's yep <laughs> but thank you Michael for coming in and stepping up yes and um also a Placer County Sheriff Donald J Noons was okay. brought in so these are two criminologists that are like okay we can do this within an hour the four men were taking soil samples you know photographing the area. Now, the body was very badly burned and charred, but the lower portion of the victim's leg was also detached and lying next to the body, not from being um, dismembered by someone, but from the the heat of the flame. Oh, gosh. That's horrible. I can't. There's, like, nothing worse to me than a burnt body case. Like, it's just so brutal and horrific. It is. And inhumane and just, it's horrible. And, and just an absolute uh, awful way to die. It's got to be yeah. the worst. One of the worst. I know what my sunburn feels like today, and I can't right. imagine I that know. being magnified. You did walk in in immense pain yes. from your leggings touching your sunburn. Yeah, so. it, was, it was bad. So I yep. just, I mean, I can't imagine a full Mm-mm. burn no. like that. It's horrible. Um, the left arm was propped up on its elbow, and the right arm was extended at the victim's side. Odd. Yeah, the only part of the body not burned was the left side of the victim's face. It was obvious that the victim was female because her breasts, although severely charred, remained visible, so they could deduce immediately. In all, they were able to collect more than 30 pieces of evidence, and some of the items that they found were that were cataloged was a toothbrush, a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, a yellow and black scarf, an underwire size 32C bra, from JC Penney's, 
a black onyx bracelet, disposable diapers, a pair of hoop earrings, and several miscellaneous articles of clothing. I have questions, but since it's a victim, I'm not going to. Yeah, we'll get to it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I know you're like, WTF? (laughs) (laughs) I have questions, Mm -hmm. but moving forward. After finishing up the crime scene, investigators dubbed the body Jane Doe number 4873-84 for the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And sent her to the Placer County morgue. Less than two hours later... There, Dr. A.V. Uh, Kahuna, it is C-U-N-H-A. These Kanha? names, I'm loving Kanha? them. It's Kanha, but I wanted to say Kahuna. <laughs> but conducted an autopsy. The victim was between 18 and 22 years old, 5 feet 3 inches, and weighing approximately 115 pounds. There were signs of abuse mm. on the body. And there were two puncture wounds discovered on the victim's back, The discovery of an ovarian tumor indicated that Jane Doe had suffered a severe beating at some time prior to her death, which was news to me. I didn't know that, like she she had like some sort of like a like a hemorrhage like tumor on her. Like she had been hit so hard that it it that's horrible. It knocked her ovary and damaged her ovary. And her physical injuries were life threatening, but the immediate cause of death was smoke inhalation. Oh, there was smoke so in her she, lungs. So, so she, she was, was alive. alive when she was lit on fire. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Now, following the autopsy, Jane Doe's fingers were removed and sent in to Sacramento for prints, and her maxilla and mandible were also removed in case dental records surfaced. They had, you know, some clues to go on, but they had very little hope of discovering her identity, mm-hmm. really. I mean, this was... Pretty mysterious. And, yeah, yeah, it's 1984, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit now some background. We've got we've got a victim. Now we're going to go to who Teresa Knorr was in the beginning of her life. Okay. Okay. So transition music. Now, Knorr was born in Sacramento, California. She was the younger of two daughters born to Swanny. S W A N N I E. How would you say that? Swanny, 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 <laughs> s- slippy, slappy. It reminds me of Dumb, dumb and Dumber. <laughs> She's like Samsonite. <laughs> it was way off. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how we both just went there, but yeah, it's totally what sure. it reminded me of. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Teresa's mom's name is Swanny. Sw- Swanny. Swanny. Okay. Something of yep. that nature. And James Jim Cross. Mrs. Cross had a son and daughter from a previous marriage. Her husband had actually uh, died mysteriously. So then she married Jim, and she had Teresa, and also Teresa had a younger sister, Rosemary. Jim, her dad, worked as an assistant cheesemaker at a local dairy. Sign me up for that job. job. Yes. Scratch that. I want to test the cheese. I don't want to make the cheese. Oh, for sure. Yes. He eventually saved up enough money to buy a house in Rio Linda, California, which apparently was like a real schwanky, really nice house. In the late 1950s, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which forced him to quit his job. Oh, bummer. Yes. And he developed severe depression and reportedly took his frustrations and anger out on his family. But Mrs. Cross, so Annie, kept the family afloat financially. And Teresa was really, really close with her mom. However, she was a loner and very jealous of her sister, Rosemary. 
They fought over everything. Her and Rosemary were constantly fighting over, like, neighborhood boys, fighting for their mother's attention, just really not getting along. And outsiders felt that Swanny, Mrs. Cross, favored Teresa over Rosemary, actually. Oh, interesting. Yes. Um, and I, I will say that our references are in the show notes, but a bulk of my information actually is coming from a book, Mother's Day, by Dennis McDougall and Whatever Mother Says by Wensley Clarkson. Uh, there's also another really good, it's on truecrime.com. It was a nice article by David Lore that kind of wrapped up like in a nice little nutshell the case as well. So, mm. so just so you guys know where I'm getting my information from, I'm not doing direct quotes or anything, but, but that check those out. There's some, some good books on this uh, case. All right, so like I said, Teresa and Rosemary didn't really get along, and it seemed like her mom favored her. Teresa. I really saw it going the other way. Yeah. Nope. Nope. But I think because of that, I'm just trying to kind of lay a foundation for maybe where her headspace might have been from, come from Mm -hmm. with some of the stuff that she does. But she's got an abusive, a father that developed depression, you know, was abusive, took his frustrations out on his family. And then on the afternoon of March 2nd, 1961, this is probably what everyone speculates affected Teresa the most. She was taking her mom to a local store when her mom suddenly collapsed. As Teresa held her mother Swanny in her arms, she died. Oh. Yep. And her cause of death was congestive heart failure. So That's, they didn't know she had it. Okay. So it was out of nowhere. It was a completely out of nowhere. It's horrible. Yeah. Without Sawani's income, Jim Cross could no longer afford to keep the family home and was forced to sell it, which was also another like big oh, thing. Absolutely. I mean, this, they had this big, beautiful home and now they, they have to sell it. Bit by bit, every piece of security that Teresa had known was taken away from her. Her life seemed to kind of just launch into this chaotic status of disarray. And I got to say at this point, I mean, rightfully, yeah, that's, yeah. that's she tragedy. Suffered a horrible loss. Then she's dealing with her father's Parkinson's. Um, loses the loses house the she's house. known as yep, in this, home. The security, they had to sell their items off. Sure. So what happens is she basically just falls into the first man that comes along's arms that's going to save her and give her some of that security back. And that man is Clifford Clyde Sanders. (laughs) It's the first time I've said it out loud. (laughs) I mean, I've read it over and over again and wrote it in my notes, but that's the first time I've said it out loud. Clifford Clyde Sanders. Cliff Clyde. I like it. Cliff Clyde. That's an airplane flying over. (laughs) It is. Cliff Clyde was five years older than Teresa when the two first met at a mutual friend's house. Immediately, within weeks, they they are in love, in love. gonna get married. We we've heard it before. Weeks. That's right. We've, we have been to this dance before. <laughs> yes, we have a time or two. Whether Teresa actually loved Clifford or just really wanted that security, no one really knows. Mm-hmm. But on September 29th, 1962... Teresa Jimmy Cross became Teresa Jimmy Sanders. Yes, her middle name is Jimmy. <laughs> Thank you. I was just I coming saw in it on your for face. the uh, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. That's her dad's name is is Jim, mm-hmm. and so they decided we'll go with our first Jimmy. daughter should be Teresa Jim. You know what? You don't need to explain anything else. Right. I I think right. we know 
what name is Teresa Jimmy. Yeah, I think we know the root cause of everything here. <laughs> well, it started when I was born, and they laid me on my mom's breast and said, "You look like a Teresa Jim." <laughs> yep. We'll go with Teresa Jimmy. So there it goes. All right. Shortly after the wedding, as one does, Teresa dropped out of high school because she got in pregnant. The, uh-huh. In the child way, in as the, they say. <laughs> she became pregnant with child. She okay. did. She did. The Sanders marriage was rocky, to say the least, at first, because Teresa was repeatedly accusing her husband, Cliff Clyde. Of infidelity. And so oh, they argued a lot. She had some insecurities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was very possessive of him and kept him on a short leash. On July 16th, 1963. So they got married September 29th, 1962. Mm-hmm. Now okay. we're into July of just the next year. So it escalated quickly. Yep. Well, this is when she gave birth to their first child. Oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. But... And, and things seem to be like a little, you know, leveling out just a little bit because they're busy with the new baby. But eventually she goes back to, you're cheating on me, you're a dirty scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Now, Cliff Clyde was unhappy in the marriage and he had wanted to leave. But Teresa gets knocked up again oh, in okay. the spring of 1964. So another babay. Another babay. Get ready, because there's going to be a litter of babes. Oh, okay. Yeah, it'll be hard to keep up. And so he's I will... like, I'm unhappy, but I'll still plant my seeds. Yeah, I'm going to. We're still plowing Plenty the field. Plenty of them. Yeah, we're still plowing. All right, harvesting must continue. <laughs> so they had their first baby July 16th, 1963. By the spring, she's she is in the child way again. Okay. And he had said he probably would have left her, but, you know, here comes another There's babay. another one, Yeah. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment. It's just too small. So they're like, yep, we got to move just outside of Sacramento. Sacramento. On June 22nd, 1964. So she got pregnant in the spring 1964. Now we're in June 1964. Cliff Clyde spent the day drinking with his friends and came home drunk. Mm. Okay. He is like 23 years old. So, oh, yeah. Day drinking with friends. In June. June 22nd. It's a wonderful Summer day to day, day. Drink. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I get Sounds it. Sounds good to me. Yep. But not maybe when you have a baby and a pregnant woman at home. Yep. yep. And also not when you're spending all your money, household money on booze, booze. that you don't have. Yeah. Probably didn't go over well. Oh, it didn't. A huge argument ensued. This is where Teresa claims that Cliff Clyde Sanders punched her in the face during an arg- during the argument. And she reported the incident to the police, but refused to press charges against her against him. So the assault charges were subsequently dropped. Now, according to the 1995 book "What Other Whatever Mother Says" by Wensley Clarkson, Cliff Clyde had a huge argument with Teresa just a little while later on his birthday, July 5th, 1964. So June 22nd, she's like, "He's roughing me up." Yeah. Now it's his birthday. And this is where Teresa accuses him of infidelity again. And he's like, listen, I've had enough. I'm sick and tired of you accusing me of. Of cheating. Yeah. And yep. Yeah. So the following day, July 6th, Cliff Clyde packed his bags and told Teresa that he was leaving her. But unfortunately, he never made it out the door. Teresa went into a rage, grabbed a rifle and shot her husband. Oh, 
Uh-huh. Okay. Wow. It literally says in the book, Clifford stumbled backwards and fell dead. Well, there you have it. Yep. The Galt police chief, Walter... He's not alive anymore, so he doesn't care if I match a mess up. <laughs> he his will last understand. Fro Frohelish, you guys. It's F R O E H L I C H. I dare you to come at me with Fro- the Frohelicious. Frohelish. Frohelish. All I can think of is Fergalicious. That's what he oh, said. Yes. Police Chief Walter Fergalicious was one of the first on the scene. Police Chief Walter Fergalicious <laughs> said that because there's I'm, it's going to be in my head all day yeah. now. <laughs> Police Chief Walter quoted what Teresa told him when he was first on the scene. She said, I, "Quote: I grabbed a gun to keep him from hitting me, and it went off." Clifford's body was lying face down in the doorway of the kitchen and on the opposite end of the room that Walter Chief Walter Fergalicious found the rifle leaning against the wall. So he arrested Teresa and transported her to the Sacramento County Jail. Now, they had their baby, whose name was Howard. Mm, Okay. Um, Howard. Howard was taken to stay with one of Teresa's relatives. On August 4th, 1964, she enters a plea of innocent by reason of self-defense in a Sacramento courtroom. Her trial was scheduled to begin three weeks later with Judge Charles W. Johnson. Now, the district attorney, Donald Dorfman. I love the names in this case. The names are just so Mm -hmm. plentiful today. Donald Dorfman wanted a first-degree murder conviction. I mean, she she shot her husband in the back of the head. How is it self-defense? Yeah, that's... The back of the head, and he was lying face down, and the rifle was across the room. I can kind of see why he's like, I'm going for the first degree. Yeah. On August August 30th, 1964, he began his opening statements to the jury. He accused Teresa of murdering her husband in cold blood and insisted that she had made up the allegations of self-defense. Rightfully so. The murder, in Dorfman's opinion, was committed because of Teresa's suspicions that her husband was committing adultery. So afterwards, uh, Teresa's attorney, Robert Zarek, argued that Teresa acted out of self-defense and was only protecting herself and her unborn child, because remember, she is pregnant. She's Margo again. One of the first witnesses called to the stand was Dr. Arthur Wallace, the man who performed Clifford Sanders' autopsy. Here we go. Yep. Though I will say in this court hearing, they did their due diligence and they did every everything correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay, Wallace testified that there was no powder burns on the body and blood tests re- revealed no presence of alcohol. He described the injuries to St- Sanders' body and testified that a thirty thirty caliber slug had passed through his wrist before embedding itself in his heart. Quote, it was my assumption, and I believe this to be very correct, that the deceased apparently had his hands in some position in front of his chest. So, like, holding his hands up. Because it passed through his wrist, the front of his wrist. So if you picture somebody holding their hands up, like, don't shoot, don't shoot. Yeah, That is what he's saying. And the fact that it lodged within the soft tissues of the heart shows that its momentum was considerably slowed when it struck the chest. So it's like he was defending himself. Interesting. Is what they were, they were saying. And one went through the back of his head, too? And one went through the back of his head okay. as well. So it's like she went for round two, yes. even though he'd been shot already? Exactly. Okay. Yes. So he was shot 
in the heart, like first, turned around, likely to leave, to escape. Okay. Still trying to get out Still of there. Still trying to get out of there with, you know, with this in the soft tissue of his, his heart. And, uh, you know, a gunshot went through his wrist. And She's then shot in the back of the, the job. Doesn't really sound like defense, defense to me. It <laughs> right. sounds like she wanted to assure he was dead. Uh-huh. They established, like, this thirty thirty is the murder weapon. Okay, all that was established during the trial. Teresa, who was pregnant with her second child at the time, testified on her behalf during her trial that the shots that she had shot her husband because he was a violent alcoholic who physically abused her. Remember, there was no alcohol found at the time of the autopsy. And she's trying to claim that he came home drunk after partying with his friends all day on his birthday. My God, she killed him on his birthday? She killed him the day after his birthday. Oh, okay. She's saying he he spent all of his birthday, you know, instead of with us, with a family, he was out drinking, he was drunk, he came home on the 6th, started, he was physically violent, started attacking me. Uh Uh-huh. So she had no other choice but to shoot him twice. Twice, Mm -hmm. yes. Absolutely no choice. Yep. Now, several of Cliff Clyde Sanders' relatives testified that Sanders was not violent or abusive. While the prosecution claimed that Teresa killed Sanders maliciously and without provocation. Which, yeah, okay. Teresa's sister also testified that Teresa was possessive and jealous and would, quote, kill him before any other woman could have him. Sounds like that's what happened. Yes, yes. She told the jury a tearful story of physical abuse and claimed her husband was a violent alcoholic, like I said. Mental health counselor Dr. Leroy Walter, with an O, not an A, described Teresa as anxious, remorseful, and frightened. It was his opinion that she acted in self-defense and was not capable of committing a cold-blooded and calculated crime. Really? Mm-hmm. Friends and relatives enforced Walter's testimony and described Teresa as a sweet young girl who did not know what she was getting into when she married Sanders at the tender age of 16. Because remember, at this point, she's only 18. Oh, wow. I guess I didn't right? realize that. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's just about to be, she's actually, yeah, she had just turned 18 at this point. Okay. Closing arguments began on September 21st, 1964, where Dorfman repeated his opening statements and accused Teresa of murdering her husband out of jealousy. He's like, this is clearly premeditated first-degree murder. Like, clearly, he's saying to the judge, judge or the, blah, blah, the jury. Not every murderer can look like the witch in Snow White. She is 18 and pregnant, but that doesn't overcome the fact that she maliciously shot and killed her husband without provocation. On September 22nd, after deliberating for one hour and 45 minutes, one hour and 45 minutes. That's very quick. Mm -hmm. The jury found Teresa Jimmy Francine Sanders not guilty. I had a feeling we were going there. The DA Dorfman was dumbstruck. It was the 18-year-old pregnant. Sure was. And her sob story, she testified for herself Mm -hmm. and laid it all out, her sob story. She was a victim of this 23-year-old. Yep. Yep. Not was she okay. cute? Like, is she... You know, that's a good question. I've only seen recent photos of her, and... Uh, not so much. Age has not done her well, but uh, but she, I'm not I'm not sure. If we would have had a, you know, 18-year-old ogre... Right, No, right. I'm just kidding. How would the jury have received that? <laughs> but no. it sounds like that pregnant 18-year-old, I'm sure she presented very sweet. Yes. 
Yeah. It got him. Hook, line, Definitely and sinker. sure did. It sure did. Because after earning her acquittal, she got custody of Howard back, and she moved in with, with um, family friends. She was four months pregnant. Uh, her marriage to Clifford may not have been happy, but at least it provided her with a sense of belonging. So now at 18, she's alone and, again, desperate. Mm-hmm. Her, her want ad would say something like, desperately seeking stability, you know, something yeah. like that. So instead, she turned to alcohol and began drowning her sorrows at a local American legion. I love the legion. The legion. If you guys don't know what that is, it's a hell of a good yeah, time. It really and every, is. Every county, I swear, has one. Always a good time at the legion. A lot of people our age like grew up in the legion because like our parents. A time or two at the legion for yeah, sure. My parents uh, never ever drank so I hear other people's stories I I was raised out isolated on a farm gotcha. but, but I have heard all of my friends and other family members stories about taking their kids to the legion while they you know played cards and they always had great dinners and stuff fish fries at the yes. legion yeah so she, yeah so she's going to the American legion she's getting her drink on yeah and it was there that she met Estelle Lee Thornsbury and I know what you're thinking Estelle is a chick's name, but apparently <laughs> it is what I was thinking. <laughs> apparently, it's not. But she was like, not if you cover it up with a manly middle name. Oh, for sure, because it's spelled the masculine way, L E E. She's like, my my middle name is Jim, and yeah, you'll do. And your first name's Estelle. We got this. We're perfect. Yep. So, Mr. Thornsberry was an Army veteran, which is why he was at the American Legion. Yep, absolutely. He was an Army veteran who had suffered a dilapidating blow two years earlier when a swimming accident left him quadriplegic. <gasps> oh. Yeah. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Thornsberry's disability didn't seem to bother Teresa, and the two began dating. On March 13, 1965, Teresa gave birth to Shyla. Gay Sanders. So that's the second baby with the husband she killed. Okay. So the baby probably had fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, yes, she, uh, for sure. She, I mean, there's nothing. I was ever. wondering if there was the birth before the Legion no, or after. I am so. telling this story in the exact timeline that it happened. Okay. And she was pregnant at the Legion, drinking, drinking. it up. Meets this quadriplegic army veteran who is like, yeah, I think it's perfectly normal that you're drinking it up while you're pregnant. Let's stay. And so they had, um, and I mistyped my notes. Her name is Sheila. Sheila. Sheila Gay Sanders. Okay. Was born. And even though the child was not his, Thornsbury doted on her and treated her like his own. He was deeply in love with Teresa. He suggested (laughs) that they all move in together and live as a family. Teresa agreed, and a few weeks later, they rented out a small apartment. Now, in the beginning, Thornsbury really enjoyed this situation. But then Is there all a big old butt in here? Here's the big old butt. He's like, Teresa, it really just seems like you're using me as a babysitter so you can go get your drink on. Oh, so it didn't stop. It did not. And then you're also going and getting your hump on with my oh, best friend. Okay. So, so we not, have some problems. I'm not okay with that. They had a heated argument. She packs her stuff. And not just her stuff. She also stole half of his stuff as well. More oh, than half. He seems like a pretty decent guy too because, you know, he was right. like caring for the yes. child. He's like, I'll embrace yes, her your as family. my own. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. There were, a, you know. 
I'm going to say, though, dude, there's a lot of red flags. She murdered her husband. Right. She's drinking while pregnant. Mm, We could see this coming, Thornsberry. Loneliness will really make you blind. It does. I I understand. Me too. <laughs> Your eyes could not have gotten bigger there. <laughs> like, I, I, I get you, pal. I get you. So she moves in with friends. Now, then, immediately, she met and began a relationship with Marine vet, or a Marine private, excuse me, not a vet yet, a Marine private named Robert Nor. And She's would, really diving in. Well... She gets it from she man. Does. I'm, from man to man, she's she's got something special. No surprise, she becomes with child. Oh Lord! Again, I'm gonna just keep holding my fingers up to help you understand. Thank you, because I was on. losing count. We're on child number three, man number three, but she never had any kids with Thornsberry. She just used him as a babysitter. Gotcha. Yeah, it became pretty obvious that she was using him. Yep. When she was seven months pregnant, she's like, you know what, Nor Robert. Good old Bob Nor, we got to get married. So they drive to Nevada. They exchange their vows. And on July 9th, 1966, they become married. Now, this all, like, I don't know if you guys are following along with my timeline or not. But 1965, March, she gave birth to her second child. She was acquitted in 1964. She moves fast. Quick. This girl gets it done. She has more experience in this, like, year than I've had in my entire (laughs) Entire life. life. Yes. So, it was Robert's, Nor's first marriage, her second. Both were eager to, you know, settle down as a nice, happy family. And two months after their marriage, September 27th, 1966, Teresa gives birth to her third child, a girl, that Teresa named Susan Marlene Nor. Less than three months later, she becomes pregnant. Oh my again. goodness. <laughs> she so, is a fertile she being. Absolutely is. So September twenty seventh, nineteen sixty six is when she had Susan. September fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven, she has Robert. And so this is Robert Nor's first son. So granted, he's gonna he's be named Robert. Oh, yeah, you know? junior for mm-hmm. sure. So then she gives Robert another son, which is Teresa's fifth child, born on December 31st, 1968. So she's got him 66, 67, 68. Wow. Bam, bam, bam. Uh They're coming quickly. Yep. And what's more confusing is that William Robert Knorr was Robert's first son. Mm -hmm. All right. And then... The, the second son that she gives Robert, she wanted to, like, keep him in mind when naming. So so the her fifth child, Robert's second son, was named Robert Wallace Knorr. So we have, a, we have a William Robert Knorr and a Robert Wallace Knorr. Okay. So, like, I'm going to give you your older brother's middle name as your first name. That's what she did. I'm, I don't know how I, I feel about her name choices, not to insult any of the kids, but, you know. I know. She's, Interesting it's, names. It's different. Yeah. She was drunk a lot. <laughs> she she That's was. That's just what we're going to say. So poor Robert Nor had been injured twice before receiving, because you remember he was active military, before receiving shrapnel bad enough to discharge him finally to the States. Um, he conter- continued to serve in the military 
but his diminished abilities left him few options and he was forced to work as a burial escort. Don't sign me up for that job. Yeah, I will pass. And although it made good money, he often had to like leave at a moment's notice and travel all over the place. So Teresa disliked this and, you know, was pretty vocal about her opposition to it. Then, simultaneously, as she became upset about his job, she also just decides to start accusing him of infidelity as well, like she did. Old habits die hard. Good old Cliff Clyde. Yeah. Tempers often flared, and Teresa took her anger out on her children. Oh, no. According to Denise McGoggle's book, Mother's Day, Teresa would often punish them by forcing them to sit on the floor without moving. If they budged an inch or moved an eye, she would become angry and slap them. Whenever they didn't work, she would lock them in a closet or force feed them until they became ready to collapse. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, she is some Shelly Kotek-esque in, in yeah, here. Yeah, I, I am I'm seeing that. By June 1969, Robert could no longer take Teresa's allegations and outbursts. He left his children behind. He packed up what few belongs, belongings he had and moved out. Why couldn't he have taken the kids? Yep, just just left them. Teresa retaliated by filing for divorce on grounds of extreme cruelty, but a few weeks later, they reconciled and she dismissed her charges. Regardless, as much as Robert wanted to make the marriage work, it was too late. One year later, Teresa again filed filed for divorce, and in an ironic twist, Judge Charles W. Johnson, the same judge that presided over Teresa's murder trial, granted the couple a divorce on June 3rd, 1970. The same judge? The same judge. Wow. That was like, yeah, you didn't murder your husband. I guess I'll Here's grant you divorce. a divorce from the yeah. second one. <laughs> I see no problems here. Mm-hmm. Two months later, Teresa gave birth to her sixth and final child and named the girl after herself, Teresa Marie nor she just could not be bothered with coming up with different names everyone's got to be robert someone's got to be she was probably like my gosh i I can't i can't take anymore yes everyone's name is bob (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) following the divorce robert tried to visit his children but of course Teresa did not want anything to do with him and repeatedly denied him the right to see them and so he eventually gave up and did remarry ah yeah Now, Teresa will marry twice more. In 1971, she married a railroad worker named Robert Pullen. That marriage began to fall apart when Nora began leaving her children with him while she stayed out all night drinking and partying. It's like so, she, there, it's it's like she alternates. Like I'm going to use this one. Yeah, and, I'm going to marry this one and give it a go. But I, but then I'm going to accuse him of cheating. Right. And then I'm going to just use this one as a babysitter while I find my next one. Yes. So he divorced her in 1972. They got married in 1971. Yeah. Oh after gosh. he began, after he became convinced that she was having an extramarital affair. Well, yeah, I'd say probably she's probably. not coming home at night. We know she's not sleeping in a girlfriend's couch, you know. So on September 27th, 1972, once again, Judge Charles W. Johnson grants her another divorce. So here he is like, hey, little lady. Teresa. (laughs) First name basis. Like, here's this 
Remember the sweet, innocent 18-year-old that was sitting testifying for herself? Now she's literally on her third divorce. Well, second divorce. She murdered the first one. Maybe he was just like, well, at least they're still alive. That's true. Way to divorce these two and not murder them. Right. Yeah, perhaps. So now she's got newfound freedom, right? She spent the majority of her time drinking at the American Legion in Rio Linda. Girl loves her some Legion. She does. And... It was there that she met 59-year-old Chet Harris. Run, Chet, run. Oh, Chet. Good old Old, Chet. Old Chet. So Chet was a copy desk editor at the Sacramento Union newspaper. The two seemed to hit it off real well. So, of course, they marry on August 23rd, 1976. Why why wouldn't they jump into it? So I will say this. They were married in 76. She waited four years before she locked shit down again. Oh, okay. Well, good but for her. During that four years, she went out not taking care of her kids. She was just drinking and partying. Man, she lived hard and fast. Oh, yeah. This this bitch was rode hard and put away yeah. wet. For sure. She's the definition. She is. This is where it came from. Okay, right. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah, I'm exhausted. Teresa Knorr doesn't roll off the tongue. So that's why they're like, we got to come up with something. We'll shorten it. But this is what this bitch is. Yeah, I'm like, I need a break from her shenanigans. Like, yeah. it, there's a, so many. It's a lot to keep up with. So her and Chet Harris are like, yeah. It was immediately obvious to Teresa that yet another, or that she had made yet another bad mistake. You don't say. Well, yeah, because I think what I forgot to tell you is that they got married three days after meeting. (laughs) With a name like Chet, I mean. About a week later after meeting Chet, after she'd already married him, she was like, "Mm, this probably wasn't good because... She discovered shortly after moving in with him, so, you know, day four, when she moves in with him, she discovers that... What a taxidermy collection, didn't he? Worse. (laughs) One one of his favorite hobbies was taking photos of nude women. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) And they were everywhere. They're all over his house. Reasons why you don't marry him before going to his home at least once. Yeah, you might want to scope things out first. Yeah, because these nude women that he, these are photographs that he takes. He's, this is his hobby. Yeah, he's a hobby photographer that just happens to enjoy photographing nude women. I mean, I get the appeal. And Teresa's a little insecure, as we know. So this is not going to fly. Not okay. They are everywhere. She's got six kids. Like, oh my gosh. Yes, and he's calling it art. Oh, you know, my, they all do. My husband's a hobby photographer as well. I I would imagine at some point in time he would be like, "Yes, it's that's art. this is art." It's my honey. Heart. Yeah. And I I too would have an issue with such a hobby. Right? Yeah. He actually wanted Teresa to pose for him, which okay, you know, kudos to him. Like, I want you to be my yeah, my muse. Yes, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. You are welcome. And she was like, no, this body have done have six kids. Mm, this, this body ain't going <laughs> under the camera. Yeah, I'm not hanging above the fireplace as mantle, okay? Have friends over for dinner. Right, a conversation piece. <laughs> and this was C-section number three. No, this isn't. Oh, my uh-uh. goodness. Oh, it looks like Arby's up in there. We are not (laughs) photographing this. No. (laughs) So, 
Um, I mean, you can't blame a guy for trying. Right, right. The problem, though, is that even though she is not liking her new man's Chet, good old Chet, Chet, mm-hmm. um, tr- her daughter Susan actually grew, grew really close to him, and they would spend hours working together on jigsaw puzzles and, like, discussing mythology, and they just really, really hit it off. The relationship between Chet and Susan really angered Teresa. Oh, I was just going to say, Teresa's not having this. Yeah, and she and it's not because she was close to any of her kids. She could have given a fuck about her kids. Sounds okay. like it. But she didn't want... Her mans isn't going to be paying attention to anybody that's else. Right. Yeah. And and her and her kid's not going to enjoy this man while she hates him. Right. She, she felt, like, threatened, like he was trying to take over her parenting role even though she didn't step into the role at all. On November 22nd, 1976, two months after the marriage began, she filed for divorce. You don't say. With Judge Charles Johnson (laughs) once again presiding. I think this is my favorite part is that it's the The same judge. The judge just keeps popping up. And you're right. For sure. You are so right. By now, he is absolutely like. How's the kids? Right, right. Oh, is little Bobby getting? Isn't that all their names? They're Robert? growing so fast. Little Bobby getting Bob teeth and yet? William and yeah. another Bob. Yeah. So the paperwork became final on December seventeenth, nineteen seventy six, and it was one of Johnston's last court appearances because he retired two months later. <laughs> so he's like, "You have done worked I, me out." I feel like it's her longest relationship that she's had You're with so the judge. Right. Is the law, and now that's over because he retired. Right? He's like, I'm done with you too. I can't take yep. it. Following her latest divorce, Teresa's children noticed a remarkable change in her behavior. She started to drink even more and began putting on a great deal of weight. Uh oh. Her attitude became worse with each day, and the abuse towards her children severely increased. I don't know if I've expressed how bad I feel for these kids oh, too. Yeah, like, this is horrible. This guy is after what they guy, were. legion after legion. I'm, and I'm about to give you some quotes from them to give you some of their insight. In the the interview that Dennis did with um, Teresa, Terry is what she prefers to go by. Oh. Um, She said, quote, when we were kids, my mom beat the shit out of us a lot. If we hugged our mom too much, it was like, what are we trying to, who were we trying to convince that, you know, that meaning like, who are we trying to convince that we loved her? What are you doing hugging me so much? Or on the other hand, if we didn't hug and kiss her and tell her we loved her, then we didn't love her and we were evil children. We were demon seeds that had been given to her by Bob Knorr, end quote. Terry's older brothers, William and Robert, agreed, quote, sometime around when I turned 10, she started becoming abusive, real short-tempered, William said. She stopped going out, seeing friends at all, on any level. She got rid of the telephone because she didn't want any people calling. We weren't allowed to have anybody inside the house, end quote. So she took a really, like, really bad turn. Mm -hmm. And Robert told Dennis McDougall, the author, quote, when I was growing up, I hated the Brady Bunch because I knew that nobody lived like that. I knew that because I knew what my family life was like. Nothing could be more different from the truth and that than that bullshit TV show. Mm. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically. But what's worse is we didn't know it was an I- insane asylum, end quote. He's like, yeah, I know now right. that this isn't normal. But back then, I thought it was, so I thought the Brady Bunch was a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, we hear, we hear that so much, too. It's like, that's just the way it was. Yep. No, they recalled that during one of her 
binge drinking episodes, uh, Teresa grabbed Terry by the arm, which is her, her daughter, Teresa, and held a twenty two caliber pistol to the girl's head. Oh, my God. For months afterward, her daughter suffered terrifying nightmares. As if the mental torture was not enough, Teresa started beating the children on a regular basis, forcing them to take turns holding each other down while she administered the blows from above. Forced her children down. So horrible. Forcing her children to take turns holding each other down. This is definitely Shelley. Oh my gosh, it, there's and, so many similarities. And the books are really in-depth with this stuff. I just felt like I couldn't handle like another deep dive into an abusive mother yeah. when we've already covered it just a, co- you know, a few weeks ago. So, yes. I really, I see what you're saying now with Dorothea mm-hmm. and Shelly reproducing because you've got like the man after man. Yep. You know, you using this, them for their, their you know, whatever. Yep, it, that they can provide. Yeah. And then the torture mm-hmm, of the children, oh, the abuse of the children. Now, Teresa eventually got the idea in her head that Chester Harris, so good old Chet, who remember she was only married to for like three months, mm-hmm. had turned her daughter Susan into a witch. Legit, oh, she believed this. Nobody knows like how she came about this, but Susan began taking advantage of it and would use it against her mother, like for a source of power. She would, oh, well played, uh-huh. Susan. She would regularly say that Harris was going to initiate her into his cult by deflowering her in the name of Satan. I love it. Oh, God, Susan. The I stories. Mean, you got to do what you got to do. Now, the stories did not spare Susan from abuse, and she began suffering the worst of Teresa's blows. Oh, no. But eventually she ran from home, ran away from home. This did not last long because she was picked up by a truancy officer um, and put in a psychiatric ward, actually. Oh. Yeah. During her stay at the hospital, Susan told counselors about her family life and the regular beatings. When confronted with her daughter's allegations, Teresa claimed her daughter was lying and suffered from mental health problems. No one questioned her at all, and Susan was turned over to her mother. Ugh. How terrifying and horrible. Yep, because then, once back home, Susan received one of the most severe beatings of her life. Teresa put on a pair of leather gloves and just continuously hit Susan, repeatedly. Then she forced the other children to join in. Robert recalled in his interview with Dennis McDougall, we had to pass gloves from one from one to the other and hit Susan in the stomach for what she did to the family by running away and telling everything. Oh my gosh. End quote. Um, he said also, quote, I had to hit her twice because I didn't hit her hard enough the first time. End quote. How in so the that was heck do these that. people do this to their kids? Like instead of thinking of ways to have relationships with them, they right. just want to torture them. Right. It blows my mind. Yep. Yep. Exactly. They want them to fear them. So Teresa didn't want her daughter running away again, so at night she would handcuff Susan to the bed and force the other children to take turns keeping watch over her. School was out of the question, and Teresa did not permit her daughter to attend. Eventually, Teresa's torment broke Susan's will, and she was allowed to sleep alone and unshackled. Apparently, the fear of another serious beating kept her in line, which is exactly what it was meant to do. Yeah. So they actually lived in Orangevale, California for many years before moving into a two-bedroom apartment in Sacramento. Nor's 
oldest son, Howard, reportedly left home before the move to Sacramento. But according to the neighbors, um, the apartment was filthy and smelled of urine. And so, like, he just wanted nothing. He's like, I'm done. Yeah. So, remember Howard that he she had with um, her first husband that she murdered? Yes. That child. Okay. So, that child... Like he left out. Home. Yeah, because it was so gross. And the neighbors in this apartment did take note that her her kids were never allowed to go outside. They seemed really nervous and fearful and high strung. That for years this abuse just goes on with beating them, force feeding them, burning them with cigarettes, throwing knives at them. Oh my gosh. Yep. The holding each other down. All of that. So did they all, like, did they go to school or were they kept home? Oh, no, they were kept home. Okay. Yeah. No, they were, quote, homeschooled. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because they would go and tell. You know, yeah. Well, they she probably looked horrible, they, too. They did. And that's why they weren't allowed outside. I mean, it, yeah. Her anger, Teresa Nora's anger, was primarily focused on the oldest sister's Susan and, and um, Sheila. In an interview, Terry said that her mother resented that Susan and Sheila were maturing and blossoming into attractive young women while she faced the prospect of losing her looks as she aged. In 1982, this is when Susan was putting spells on her mother. Okay. Okay. And Teresa was convinced that the reason she was gaining so much weight was because of Susan. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, Susan denied the allegations. Like, no, I am not performing witchcraft on you. Those empty alcohol calories will catch up to you if you yep. and they careful. One night, they got into a, a huge heated argument over her Teresa's weight gain and Susan putting spells on her. And before you know it, it escalated to the point where a single gunshot rings out. Oh, no. Susan began gasping and fell to the floor. Blood poured out of her chest and she was withering in pain. Teresa had shot her own daughter with a 22 caliber pistol that she had once used to threaten Terry, her other daughter, with. Oh my God. She killed her own daughter because she was getting fat? I didn't say she killed her. Okay. She shot her. Hold on. We're getting to it. After a brief brief pause, Teresa ordered the other children to carry their injured sister into the bathroom and placed her in the tub. Teresa did not want the police involved, so an ambulance was out of the question. The bullet had not passed through Susan's body, but it was too deep to remove from the open wound, so it's like lodged in there. So she just decides that she's going to leave it and patch her up with gauze and bandages No, for the next month. Oh, my gosh. Susan's sisters were put in charge of looking after her while she recovered. I can't wrap my brain around this. Oh, yeah. She shoots her own daughter because she's gaining weight. Yes, because her daughter's clearly putting spells spells. on her. Because Chet Harris taught her how to be a witch. And her daughter is, like, bleeding profusely. Because she shot "Mm." her. She's like, here, you lay in the bathtub, girls. You take care of this. Terry and Sheila take turns feeding her, bathing her, and... Helping her recover enough. This is horrific. Yuck. Eventually, she does recover enough to rejoin the family. Wow. Where did she shoot her again? I Was it in the chest? I missed that part. It was in the chest. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Shot her in the chest. Not in the heart, obviously, I, but in the chest. I really did not think that that was going to end with her surviving. So, she had recovered enough to rejoin the family in November 1983. 
And then in July 1984, she got into an Teresa got into another heated argument with Susan and stabbed her in the back with a pair of scissors. What? Yeah. Oh my god. The injuries were not life-threatening, but they were serious. I mean, obviously, scissors in the back. Susan was getting tired of the daily abuse, and a few weeks later, she asked for permission to move out. Like, hey, you shot me. You've you now stabbed, stabbed me in the back with scissors. Don't you think this is this relationship is not working out for us? And she still politely mom. asks to move out. Mm-hmm. Hey, mom, you think maybe we could end this? I feel like it's like past the point of abuse it's attempted murder basically yeah Yeah. like I'm sick of you trying to murder me so could I please move out can I just move out because it's not working out my gosh I can't even imagine surprisingly Teresa's like you know what yeah you can move out but I would like to take that bullet out of your chest because I'm afraid that it could be used as evidence against me if you leave here and you tell people of the abuse. You no tell way. people I shot you. I don't like where this is going. So that was the stipulation. And Teresa wanted to remove the bullet herself. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Oh, yeah. Susan reluctantly agreed. And a few days later, the surgery began. Teresa started the operation by giving Susan a handful of um, malaria, M-E-L-L-A-R-I-L, Merrill capsules. And a quart of hard liquor. A quart. I'm like of breathless liquor. right now because I can't. This is giving me so much anxiety. Well, the concoction worked, and before long, Susan was completely unconscious. Teresa then retrieved an exacto knife from the medicine cabinet. But wait, she ordered her 15 year old Robert to cut into his sister's back and retrieve the bullet. Now, she was shot Gosh. in the chest, remember, but it went, it was so largely it was in, the back. in there that they went through the back to get it. Teresa barked orders from overhead as he made the incision. Before long, he had cut through several layers of skin and muscle tissue. Using his fingers, Robert searched around inside the wound until he finally located and removed the bullet. The next day, Susan woke up in horrible pain. Teresa gave her antibiotics and ibuprofen, but the medicines didn't seem to have an effect, and she kept getting worse. After a few days, her eyes turned yellow, and she could no longer control her bowels. Oh, no. At one point, her sister Terry noted black marks on Susan's back, and which were later concluded were from internal bleeding that were actually a result from Teresa's last beating of her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wasn't even related to the surgery. Oh, my gosh. This is, like, one of the worst things I've ever heard. Uh Uh-huh. I could not believe I just stumbled upon this case and had read those two books and was like, you have got to be kidding me. Can you imagine being the brother, too, that had to do this? Right. We'll get to him in a minute. On July 16th, 1984, Teresa duct taped Susan's mouth shut and bound her arms and legs. Afterwards, she packed all of the girls' belongings into trash bags and ordered Bill and Robert, so (laughs) William, Mm -hmm. William and Robert, to put Susan in the car. They drove south on Highway 89 and eventually pulled off the road by Square Creek Bridge. Bill and Robert were then ordered to take Susan out of the car and carry her down to the creek bank. Teresa brought down the garbage bags herself, laid them on top of Susan, and doused everything, including Susan, in gasoline and lit a match. 
Everyone made their way back to the car and no one looked back. Things around the Knorr house remained quiet and sullen during the weeks following Susan's death, but eventually everything went back to their, quote, normal. Susan was classified as Jane Doe, Eight four eight seven three. I was just dash eight four. I was just going to ask if this brings us back to Maybell. It does. And that's this who she had found. That Maybell found Susan. Oh my gosh, poor Susan! I can't even. I just can't. I I got nothing. Like you said, WTF? Mm-hmm. I got nothing for sure. And you're about to have even less because during late spring 1985. Teresa decided to supplement her small state-assisted income by having her 20-year-old daughter, Sheila, work the streets as a sex worker. Sheila was horrified at her mother's plan, but she was not going to disobey her mom. I mean, look at what happens. So before long, Sheila is bringing home hundreds of dollars a day, and Teresa was, like, really happy and proud of her. She eased up on the daily beatings and Sheila wow. was allowed, yeah, Sheila was allowed to come and go as she pleased. She's like, way to go, my sweet daughter. Yep. Way, I, to, I'm way to please those men. Mm-hmm. And, and you're making my, mommy proud. Sure is. I need Teresa to just not be alive anymore. So in a twisted sense, becoming a sex worker had actually helped Sheila because now the beatings have stopped and she's got some freedom. In May 1985... Sheila's freedom was brought to a sudden end. Teresa suspected that her daughter was pregnant and also accused her of having a venereal disease, which Teresa claimed to have gotten by using a toilet that they shared. All the way, by the way, no. Teresa got it from her own skanking. Yeah, her legion visits. Exactly. So skanking. I like that. Yes, her skanking. Sheila was beaten black and blue before being hogtied tied and locked in a tiny closet next to the bathroom. It was excruciatingly hot within the closet, but Teresa left strict orders for the other children. The door was to be kept closed at all times and they were not permitted to give her any food or water. Terry said years later, Teresa that her mom wanted Sheila to confess. That was mother's way. Beat them until they confess. Sheila did eventually confess, but Teresa accused her of lying, and the punishment continued. Oh, my god! So she's, like, confessing to what? Yes, I'm pregnant. Yes, I have an STD. Yeah, whatever like you want after me to say. you made me a sex worker. You made me be a sex worker. So now you want me to confess to something that you think happened to me out of what you made me do? So on June 21st, 1985... The, th- um, the third day of Sheila's incarceration in the closet, the family heard a loud thump coming from the closet, and it was the last sound that they heard from Sheila. Oh, my gosh. She died in there? Yeah, but they didn't check on her for three days. <gasps> that was the last sound they heard from her was June 21st. Oh, okay. So they didn't hear anything Mm-mm. else, but they're like, oh, she's fine. Yep. Three days later, when they opened the door, they discovered her decomposing body curled up in the fetal position. Apparently, she had tried to climb up some small metal shelves in the closet, but they wouldn't hold her weight, and she came crashing down. They only checked on her because of the odor that started to emanate. This is so sad. Uh, You want to talk about what real neglect is like. Oh, my God. Just being forced to stay in a closet 
because your mom made you a sex worker and then she's mad because she thinks you're pregnant and has an STD that you supposedly gave her from a toilet seat. And you had to confess, but that wasn't enough. You were still lying. And so the abuse continued. Teresa grabbed an old cardboard box and filled it with blankets and pillows. She ordered her two sons to place her Sheila's remains inside and carry it out to the car. Everyone did as as they were told and eventually... They're driving up Interstate 80 toward the uh, Truckee Airport. And along the way, Teresa spotted a small field and decided to pull off the road. She ordered the boys to unload their sister's cardboard casket and toss it into the weeds. These poor kids that have to partake in Mm -hmm. this. It sounds like the sons had a lot of, oh, they were her the brunt work. They were her yes men, definitely. A few hours after the box was dropped off, Elmer Barber was making his usual rounds at the Martis Creek campground and stumbled upon the homemade casket. Of course, he flips it open and is now forever scarred because he sees the human remains, notifies the Nevada County Sheriff's Department, and soon it's swarming with investigators. But they're unable to make a positive identification. There were very few clues for them to work with, just like with Susan. So... Uh, Sheila was dubbed Jane Doe 6607-85, and her case, cause of death, death was listed as undetermined because she had starved to death. Oh, my gosh. That was yeah. the... Oh. Her cause of death was that she had starved to death. Now, at this point in time, Teresa becomes extremely paranoid. I mean, in 1984, she killed one daughter. 1985, now she's killed another. And she is very concerned that there's evidence in the closet because she had started to decompose and the Mm -hmm. odor would not go away. And she was right. I mean, there is evidence in there and she doesn't want to be implicated in her daughter's death. So on September 29th, 1986, Teresa packed up all the family's belongings. So this is over a year later that she's just like, they can't get the smell out. Mm -hmm. They can't. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they decide she's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to pack up all of our belongings. And she ordered her daughter, Terry, to set the house on fire using charcoal lighter fluid. I was kind of thinking this is where it was going. Yep. Terry doused the floors and struck a match before climbing out the side window. Now, regardless of Teresa's intent, neighbors immediately noticed the fire and the local fire department was dispatched to the scene. There was little damage done to the home by the time the firefighters put it out. Oh, and, good. Uh-huh. And they had no doubt that it had been set deliberately. So Teresa's children by this time were all grown. So at this point in time, she, like, her kids are grown. Mm-hmm. They were still doing her bidding, but they were grown. They, she goes into hiding. They did get evidence from that closet. Oh, good. By the way. Good, mm-hmm. good. That comes back in a little while, in a minute. She goes into hiding. Howard, remember her first son? With yes. the husband she killed. Yes. Is 26, wanting... Nothing more to do with the family. The oh, family. and Howard had moved out, right? Yep, at Howard, this point. yep. So he's 26 at this point. His brother, William, is 24. He'd moved in with a girlfriend. Um, Teresa, or Terry, excuse me, Teresa's namesake, also had left her mother. She was only 16 at the time, though, when Teresa goes Get into out of there, Terry. she leaves. Mm-hmm. Now, Terry does use Sheila, use Sheila's identification card and was able to pass herself off as 21. Okay. That's how she leaves at 16 and makes her way. I mean, I'm glad that she was able to leave this horrible nightmare. Yep. 
But when she goes into hiding, Teresa's only remaining child was 19-year-old Robert Wallace Knorr. And he's the one that stayed by her side, and the two eventually go to Las Vegas. Now, things were going well in the beginning, but on November 7th, 1991, Robert made a dreadful mistake. He got into some trouble, and he actually ends up um, killing someone at a bar. Gets into a bar fight, kills someone. This makes Teresa very nervous, because she's like, oh, now there's some heat on us, you know. You've brought attention Um, to mm -hmm. our situation. Yep, and he was convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison for that bar fight murder. So she decides to move from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City, Utah. I was going to say, she's all alone now, right? She is all alone, and she's still in hiding after burning down, having Terry burn down that apartment. In 1992, Terry, who had now got married, was watching an episode of America's Most Wanted. While none of the cases related to her family specifically, they did inspire her to do the right thing, and she contacted Nevada authorities. Good for you, Terry. Mm-hmm. Police Sergeant Ron Para of the Nevada County California Sheriff's Office received the call. Terry told him that years earlier, her mother and her two brothers killed her sisters by dousing her with gasoline and setting her afire. The next year, she told them they killed her other sister and dumped her body in the mountains. Piera, the sergeant, police sergeant, was intrigued by her story. Seemed a little unbelievable, but he decided to interview her in person. The next day, he meets her in person, interviewed her for several hours, he took his notes to the DA's office, and the task force was assembled really just to check out the story. Mm-hmm. Like, I, You know, I have to say I'm glad that they did because yeah. we've heard other cases where they're like, mm, we don't know about Right, this. exactly. And but these people did their due diligence, and they're like, you know what? This sounds, what she's describing, sounds like our two Jane Does. Yeah, yeah. So on November 4th, 1993, inves- investigators filed felony complaints against Teresa and two of her sons. William was found in a Sacramento suburb where he worked at a warehouse and lived in a peaceful neighborhood. He was just trying to live his life. Investigators soon, soon learned of Robert's previous arrest and found him in the Nevada County prison. Neither of the boys were interested in talking with the investigators, but both eventually relented and confessed to their involvement in both of their sisters' deaths. Oh, wow. Five days later, California investigators received a call from Salt Lake City authorities telling them that Teresa had been traced by a driver's license application. She had also been arrested just five days earlier for drunk driving. Wouldn't you know it? Yep. Sergeant John Fitzgerald of the Placer County Sheriff's Office flew to Salt Lake City and headed to the address that was listed on Teresa's license application. She was going by um, one of her other married names. She went, or no, not married names, her other name. She was using the her maiden name of Cross at we, this point We have in time. a little Dorothea coming uh-huh. out, too. Yep. So just before nightfall on November 10th, 1993, there is a knock on Teresa's door and she opens it without hesitation and is immediately arrested. Yes, yes. Now, investigators had acted not a moment too soon because she was aware of the investigation because her sons had been in it, remember, and tried to be contacted by the investigators and she was caught literally packing up her belongings. She's trying to get the hell out of Salt Lake City. Oh, so she was like 
going to leave, but yes. she still answered the door without yeah. question. Like, yeah. oh. Yep. But she was packing up and she's ready um, to go. Who but would remember, want to see you, Teresa? But it was Sergeant John Fitzgerald of the Placer County office that flew to Salt Lake City. So it wasn't a police officer from Salt Lake City that was knocking on her door. Yeah. So she opens it and yes, she refused to cooperate and requested a lawyer immediately. Um, Wouldn't you know it? She was also working as a caretaker for her landlord's 86-year-old mother. <gasps> That's and I was terrifying. Like, no! There's no allegations there, but I was just like, no! Oh, yeah, that She's is not horrible. a caretaker. On November 15th, 1993, Nor was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances charges. Multiple murder and murder by torture. Those were the special That is the best news I've heard mm-hmm. all hour. Nor initially pled not guilty. Oh, yeah. Como what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But then made a deal with the prosecution after learning that her son, Robert Jr., agreed to testify against her in exchange for a reduced sentence. One month later, all charges against him, except a single count of conspiracy regarding Sheila's death were dropped. I was going to say, I would yeah. feel some sort of way of yeah. them being charged because of what they went yep. through. They, Yep, they did. I mean, they were forced and coerced completely yeah, by this woman. When Teresa learned of the deal that Robert had made with the DA's office, she decided that she didn't want to take her chances with the death penalty and offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. So, DA attorney John Mara agreed, and on October 17, 1995, Teresa changed her plea to guilty. During sentencing, Judge William R. Ridgway characterized Teresa's crimes as callous beyond belief and sentenced her to two consecutive life sentences. Teresa will be eligible for parole in 2027. Is it wrong that I wish it was the same judge? I know. That poor guy's never allowed to retire. <laughs> right? No. Like, he needed to be there right. for the finale. Yes, to see, hey, like, you, pr- you yeah. guys probably shouldn't have acquitted her on uh, that. Absolutely. And these two girls, you know, none of this would have happened. If she leaves to, lives to see it, Teresa will be 80 years old if she's paroled in 2027. Yep. This case made my soul, like, fall out of my butt. Robert, who was still serving out his murder charge in Nevada, was eventually sentenced to three years in state prison for his involvement. The court ordered the sentence to run consecutively with his murder sentence, and he um, was placed on probation for his role in the murders and um, ordered to undergo therapy. Because he was an adult when it happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yeah, Holy so that's, isn't that a wild crap. ride? Yeah. I, like I said. It's so sad what those kids went through, and two of her daughters, and the one was still alive when she, when they set fire to her, right? Yes, she was My still gosh. alive. Um, this hurts me. I told you that at the end, you're going to be like, WTF, I have no words. I don't, I have nothing. She's very similar to Shelly, She really sure. is. And I see the the Dorothea undertones yep. as well. <laughs> I'm getting a hint of Dorothea <laughs> yeah, in this as well. There's yep. some Dorothea in this palette. Yep, there sure is. Wow. I'm getting subtle notes of Dorothea <laughs> with some a ro- nutty tones yes, of Dorothea. With a robust Shelley. overturn yeah. of Shelley. That's right. I'm not loving this bouquet today. No, me neither. Me neither. So that's that. Uh, that's the story of Teresa Noor and her two murder victims of her daughters. I, yeah. I, this, it's just horrible. Like, for, for what every one of those children went through. 
My I heart know. really hurts. I know. And after that, we need a brain bath. Okay. This is the headline. Missouri cop catches a lucky break thanks to a loud fart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I yes. appreciate this already. Yes. Oh, this is from Newser Magazine. A suspect in Missouri wanted for possession of a controlled substance is likely regretting recent food choices after loud farting revealed his hiding spot near Liberty Fox. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's all right. If you've got a felony warrant for your arrest, the cops are looking for you and you fart. <laughs> it's probably not a good way to hide. Darn that Mexican. Right? <laughs> Before the... That is exactly what I would have been saying, too, was, why did I have this? Why? Why am I so addicted to tacos? Fuck. Gets me oh. every time. Yeah. I bet he was trying so hard A to hide, fart. too, and then that fart and just... And then, tell me he laughed. Like, they had to have laughed. Like, I would have laughed hysterically. Oh, my gosh. Like, here I am. I'm sorry, but you got me. Yes, I have cocaine. I bet they appreciated it so much that they had to put it in the headlines. Right, right. Because exactly. I know I would. Right. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So there's that. That is amazing. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, we hope you keep it curious and keep listening. Follow us on socials. Rate and review us. We are doing a contest for, we're going to do a random drawing. If you rate us and um, type up an, a review. Yes. We get, we get your name from that and we will announce a winner. Then you can then email us with your information and... We are going to send you some good stuff. Who doesn't like a good drawing and a good prize? Right? Exactly. So, all right. Until next time, you guys. Bye-bye.